May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Recently I've been reading a book by Karen Armstrong called The Bible, a biography. Uh, it's in a series of books called Books That Changed the World. And in part it talks about how the Bible came to be and in, in part in the two stories are intertwined it talks about how it has been read over the centuries, over the many centuries. And we heard this morning part of that process in the letter, Paul's letter to Tim Timothy, second letter to Timothy. So when Paul wrote that, most of the New Testament didn't exist. And what did exist wasn't scripture. It was simply letters that Paul had written. And so when Paul says in that passage that we heard this morning, what he describes what scripture is useful for, he is not talking about the New Testament in any way, shape or form. He's only talking about the books of what we would call the Old Testament, and in fact mostly the Mosaic Law and the Prophets. The rest of them are still kind of emerging as Scripture. For most of Christian history, and certainly for all of Jewish history, Scripture, our sacred texts, were seen as books through whom the Word of God spoke. And they spoke, the Word of God spoke through those texts as well as other ways. So for us Christians, we would say that the Word of God speaks through the life of Christ. And we would mostly have say that the Word of God speaks through creation. But those texts hold a special place. And there was never one way of reading those texts. And so within the Christian tradition, even if we read scripture, we can see several ways of reading those texts. There was the Christological way, which says that when we read what we call the Old Testament, uh, we read Christ into what the prophets and the law, etc. was talking about. Now, when those people were writing those things, they weren't writing about the Messiah, they weren't talking about Christ, but we read back into it and say, Christ was what they were talking about. That's one way of doing that. Another way is, which we can see in Paul's writing, is the allegorical way, where the writer, the interpreter, is trying to find the hidden truths within the words. Another way is to place those readings back into their historical context and say, well, what did those readings mean for those people then? And in light of that, what do those passages mean for us today? allowing this, the Word of God to speak in that, man, in that manner. There was spiritual or mystical reading of the Scriptures. Now you'll notice in all of that, that a literal reading of the Bible was not considered at all in most of church history. It's only very recently, very recently, that a literal reading of the Bible has become more fashionable. What surprised me was that the shift from the Word of God speaks through the Scriptures to the Bible is the Word of God, which is a pretty common understanding today, especially amongst Evangelical and Pentecostal Christians, is a very recent phenomenon. 
the groundwork was that, I mean, even the Protestant reformers would vehemently disagree with that. Uh, so in the 1800s, because of um, modernity, the Enlightenment, uh, where truth became fact, and fact was established by uh, evidence, so you had to be able to observe something for it to be a fact, and therefore to be truth. That methodology, strangely, was applied to the Bible, and the Bible was read then to combat that very phenomenon. So then we get Genesis being read as fact, and therefore that is the way that the world was created. I mean, if you look, talk to Calvin about that, he would have said, if you want to talk about science, go and, talk, go and do some science somewhere else. The Bible is not a science book. So that's one of the great reformers. It was the means by which the Word of God spoke to us. And in fact, the idea that the literal way of reading the Bible was the only way of reading the Bible didn't come about until the 1880s, when a book was published in North America, and uh, became a very popular book, it became a bestseller. And since then, well, for many Christians, the literal way of reading the Bible has become the only way to read the Bible, and the Bible has been reduced, and I would use that word deliberately, to a simple set of instructions, to the Maker's Handbook. And all we have to do is to read this set of instructions like we would use for our oven, and then we can live the life that God wants us to. The Word of God then got reduced to a few pages in a book. The Word of God no longer speaks to us in many ways. The Word of God and the Bible then became read in a very one way, and uh, we no longer had to wrestle with it. Now, Armstrong suggests, and I agree, that this has been desperately unhelpful for Christian faith. Our ability to talk to each other has been compromised. I mean, the debates in the past were brutal, vehement, but at least there was this common understanding that there was more than one way to read Scripture. But if one party is saying there is only one way because the Bible is the Word of God and the literal way is the only way of reading it, it's very hard to have a conversation with that. Because it doesn't matter what you say, they will also always reply with, well, my way is the right way because it's the literal way, and so everything you say is unbiblical. And we can see that happening in debates all around the world, despite our best efforts. So what I am trying to do in these sermons is to help us read Scripture in a way that we are able to hear the Word of God speak to us as we face the issues of today. I'm trying to help us wrestle with Scripture for ourselves to provide the tools because there is always more than one way to read the passages that we are reading. Every week I read a number of commentators and every week every one of them offers a different perspective on the passage that I'm reading which invites me to wrestle with it so that I can come up and stand here with something to say. It would be much easier if I just read one. Well, so let's wrestle 
And today's reading from the Gospel is a good one to wrestle with. It's a very meaty Gospel passage. The, for, a, for a start, there are at least two kinds of audiences with a lot in common in this reading. There's the audience gathered around Jesus, the poor, who Jesus spends much time with, whose lives were shaped by, as one of the commentators I read, cruel exploitation and the arbitrary and unjust abuse of power. And these people longed for the coming of the promised reign of God's justice and wondered why it was taking so long under the heel of Rome. And these people in the story are represented by the widow. And then we have Luke's community, the people he wrote this gospel for, whose lives are similarly shaped by cruel exploitation and the arbitrary and unjust abuse of power. And they too long for the promised the coming, the promised coming of God's reign of justice, represented in the coming of Christ. And they too wonder why this is taking so long. Didn't Christ say that he would come soon? And it has now been so long, and the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so this longing that is represented in the story raises all kinds of questions like, well, who is God? Can God be relied on? Will God's justice ever come? Does God ever answer our prayers? And what is justice? What is it we long for? And what is prayer? What is it that we should pray for? What is the effect of prayer? And finally, what is faith? And as you listen to that reading, you may have had some of your own questions. Well, let's start with what is justice. And the judge offers us a definition in what he is not. So he is described as someone who does not love God and does not love and does not respect his fellow people. Which echoes the, the summary of the Mosaic law that is found in each of the Gospels. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. He does not do that. So we might say then that justice happens when we do love God with all our heart and soul and mind, and we love our neighbour as we love ourselves. But who is our neighbour? That is the question. And that is the question that Jesus answers in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We love our neighbour when we are able to see our neighbour in all, all, even those who are unlike us. So to use some of the language of Torah, including the alien in the land which in our case is the refugee and the asylum seeker, the immigrant, those of different faiths, those of different ethnicities. And then there are the poor, the widow, and so on, when we see these as our neighbour, and when we love them as we love ourselves, then God's justice is done. So what is prayer in light of that? Well, in this passage, prayer is not just intercessory prayer. In this passage, prayer comes out of our relationship with God. 
It is fundamentally a community, a communal activity. It's not something I do, it is something we do. In fact, I remind myself of that every morning when I start praying. That's the same prayer I use before the service, uh, which says, The night is past, the daylight is open before us, as I join the prayers of today. So in the book it actually says, as we pray, or as, but I'm on my own. So it would be as I pray. But I, but I think, well, actually, it's not just me praying. I am joining the prayers of all the faithful today. And we will pray, even those who I fundamentally disagree with. So I join the prayers that are happening that day. This is fundamentally a community activity. I join my Franciscan brothers and sisters. I join my Anglican brothers and sisters I join, I join all the faithful who pray. Prayer is also actively seeking God's will, and God's will is always for justice. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, to love your neighbour as yourself, that is the will of God. Prayer is more than words. The widow is a great example of what prayer is. When we pray, we are allowing ourselves to be changed in the act of praying. So that we become, as we, so as we pray for justice, we allow for the possibility that we might become the means by which God brings about justice. So I think often we think that um, if we pray, God will miraculously do stuff, but actually God does miraculous stuff through us as we respond to what we are praying about. As we get engaged in that, we become the agent of God's justice. So that we become like the widow in the story. And uh, there's a word there, bothering, which in the Greek is actually beat black and blue. Uh, it literally means give a black eye. So it wasn't that she was just nagging him. She was essentially boxing with him and giving him a black eye. She was bothering so much. I mean, bothering is a clear understatement of what that is about. And that is what we are to be like. Like the widow, giving black eyes. Bothering beyond belief. Bothering those who perpetuate injustice. Those like the judge who do not love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and do not love their neighbour as they love themselves. In prayer then, we are changed to be people who love God and love all our neighbours and who seek justice for all our brothers and sisters. So what then is faith? In this reading, <coughs> faith is praying for justice incessantly and not losing heart, not losing hope, despite the evidence. So as I wrestle with this text, it asks me, who is it that I pray incessantly for? Who is in need of justice that occupies my thoughts? 
Who is it that I pray for always and not lose heart? So what about you? Who is it that you pray incessantly for? Who is it that needs justice that occupies your thoughts? Who are you called to pray for always and not lose heart? Who is it that you are called to pray for, opening yourself to the possibility that you might become the agent of God's justice in that situation? Or, as you wrestle with this text, what other question is being asked of you? So, instead of a creed, I'm going to invite you to turn to your neighbour and to have a conversation. How do you wrestle with this text? So, any thoughts or responses? Well, we probably pray for our family first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes, we will. And then mm-hmm. sort of spread the net a bit wider. Right. I guess you're involved with your family. I find it hard to pray for people who inflict to it on others. Mm-hmm. But they need our prayers most of all. They do. Well, keep praying. It's beyond your families. Families are important, but the invitation there is to pay for a, for all those other things. And but beware, because as we pray for them, we are changed, um, and our attitudes to those people, and our understanding about those issues will change. That is part of the power of prayer. It's not only us kind of saying something to God, but in that in that act of opening ourselves, my experience is we are changed as well. And we become different people. So with that warning, shall we pray?